Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and I'm flying solo today and it's exciting. Why am I flying solo? The others are doing some other recording, but they're missing out on the best one. The best one because we're going to be doing some really cool stuff. So with me, I've got Francis Young, who's a historian and folklorist who specialises in the history of religion and belief. He's written, he's written quite a few books, actually. So the first one, for example, is a history of Anglican exorcism. Then you've got Magic in Merlin's Realm, a history of occult politics in Britain. But we're going to be talking about his most recent book, which is Twilight of the Godlings, The Shadowy Beings of Britain's Supernatural Beings. Hi, Francis. Hello. I'm excited because I can finally have a bit of fun with the subject and we're going to delve into things like superstition and beliefs and and things that I don't know I mean the last part of your question is do people still believe this today so I don't want you to answer this now before I jump the gun in all of this but we'll get there we will we will get there there's quite there's a lot to do with godlings I mean you talk about a lot of different things in this book like a lot especially things that we have heard about but first of all before we start I start running away with things as I always do what is a godling i mean i tried to google this and google said something else to what your book said so i need you to explain what an actual godling is yes it's not it's not a very common word uh, that we come across in everyday speech uh, but a godling is a small god um so when we add that suffix ling to the end of it it implies something smaller than your usual god uh, so a godling is essentially a supernatural being that has some divine characteristics within a society that might be seen as a little bit like a, a god or a goddess, but really is of a lower order. And so we're talking here about deities connected particularly to nature, deities connected to the earth. So these are not the deities that you know pr- preside from the heavens and, and direct the fates of human beings, although they can have an influence on on fates and destinies. Uh, the the yeah the the phrase "small gods," of course, was coined by Terry Pratchett, and I rather like it because it does capture again this idea that in in many polytheistic societies, and indeed in in some post Christianized societies as well, you will find these this belief in in beings that are just a little bit too insignificant and small to have been stamped out by the imposition of another religion, such as, as Christianity, for example. So they are fascinating beings because they can, they can survive under the radar 
Well, Google told me it was something to do with a scary witch hag. So um, I think you need to go onto Wikipedia and correct this because it's very misleading Wikipedia. Thank you very much. And also the worst thing for historians, FYI. I'm not going to admit that I've ever used Wikipedia again after this podcast. Okay, right. Ancient history. One of my favorite things to talk about, apart from obviously 20th century history. And I mean, it, it goes back to literally ancient history in the sense that in modern day Catholicism, you've got things like God, demons, good things, bad things, and demons are all bad and evil and all this sort of things. I mean, how do the ancients kind of decipher all of this thing with what chaotic thing with godlings? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Christianity encourages a kind of dualistic view of supernatural beings, that any supernatural being is either good, like the angels, or totally evil, like the demons and, and Satan. But that's really not the way that people in the ancient world viewed things. So in the ancient world, you've got a hierarchy of celestial beings with Zeus or Jupiter at the top, the Olympian gods, who are essentially sky gods. They're, they're a pantheon of deities who are celestial and they, they are, you know, to some extent indifferent to human beings. Um, and, you know, certainly in classical literature, they treat us like pawns on a chessboard and, you know, kind of do whatever they want to us. Um, but below them, you've got these other categories of supernatural beings. So you've got demigods, you've got heroes like Hercules and Achilles and so forth. But you've also got these beings that seem to belong to an older stratum of worship. And these are the nature gods. So the classic ones in the ancient world are Pan for the Greeks, Faunus for the, the Romans. You've got the, the Moirai for the Greeks, the Parkai for the Romans, who are the goddesses of, of destiny. And you've got these household gods like the Lares and Panates for the Romans. And then you've got for, for the Greeks, you've got the nymphs, who are these uh, these female nature deities. Now, these have some sort of cult. They tend to be honored outdoors informally. They don't have a priesthood. They don't normally have temples. Uh, so they, they don't have this kind of civic cult that the Olympian gods have got. And so the Romans and the Greeks are well aware already before Christianity comes along that, you know, not all gods are the same. There is a kind of hierarchy within them. And sometimes as well, the Romans, who, of course, were very good at colonizing other peoples, when they arrived and took over a country like Britain, for example, then they would take the gods of that country. And sometimes they would identify them with the Olympian gods. But at other times, they would downgrade those gods, or they would identify them as essentially godlings rather than gods. Do you have any examples of that, for example, in Britain? Because this is a subject that I, I'm going to be honest, I have no idea when it comes down to Britain in that time period and ancient gods and paganism. So are there, uh, so let me start again. Can you name some of these gods that they would have demoted in that time? Yeah, a, a good example is the goddess Brigantia. Um, so there was a tribe in northern Britain called the Brigantes who seemed to have worshipped a goddess called Brigantia. Um, but there's there are some descriptions that identify her with a um, a Syrian goddess called Kylestis, who's a kind of, as her name suggests, a celestial god. Um, but other times 
you find Brigantia is identified as a nymph. She's Nympha Brigantia. So in other words, she's been kind of, you know, downgraded from a goddess, and now she's a nymph. Um, and another one is Sulis. Now, Sulis is the goddess of Bath, the, the, the hot springs in the west of England, um, known to the Romans as Aquae Sulis. And normally, Sulis is identified as Minerva, you know, one of the top rank goddesses of the Roman pantheon. But sometimes she's identified as the Sulevii, so um, a group of mother goddesses. So in other words, she's not identified as a singular being, but as a group of beings. There seem to be these competing traditions about how we interpret these gods. And this is another characteristic we find of godlings. Godlings are sometimes a group. So whereas we might think of gods and goddesses as these singular personalities and beings, godlings can sometimes be a more general category. So when, when you think about Faunus, for example, Faunus is a Roman god, but there's also this category of being known as fauns, you know, probably best known from the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. But they are, of course, stretching right the way back to classical antiquity, these beings that are, you know, partly man, partly goat. And so, yeah, there's an ambiguity about godlings. Are they one or are they many? And sometimes there are even other ambiguities, like ambiguities about whether they're male or female. You mentioned this, which is going to lead me nicely on to my next question, because the archaeologist in me is kicking in a little bit and asking about material culture. I mean, for example, you just mentioned the fawn. We know that a lot of material culture has been left over, for example, in Pompeii, I'm not going to mention exactly, but some of the more obscene um, sexual statues that exist of this godling. Might as well use it. I'm going to use that word, of a godling. But are there any other cultural materials that have survived from ancient godlings apart from the fawn? Yes. Um, so from Roman Britain, which is, you know, the focus of, of my book is Britain, um, there, there are a few traces that we find of the, of the worship of godlings. Nowhere near as many as we would find of the worship of the, the more standard gods, uh, and that's because people tended to, yeah, tended to engage in sort of very formal religious activities like dedicating altars when it was the uh, you know the more prestigious gods. But occasionally you will have come across altars from Roman Britain that mention these more um, mysterious beings. So, for example, on Hadrian's Wall, there seems to have been a cult of a group of beings known as the Veteri. Um, and sometimes it's one singular being called Veteris, and other times it's the Veteri as a group. And, and again, that's a telltale sign that we're dealing with a group of godlings here. And sometimes we will get dedications to nymphs. Uh, there's, a, you know, there's, there's only one so far, one example of a, a sculpture of the Parkai, the three goddesses of fate that's been found from Britain. And that was that was found at, at Colne in Wiltshire uh, only as recently as 2018. Um, so we do find those. Probably the most famous example is, however, related to Faunus. And this is the Thetford treasure. So in 1979, a, an illegal metal detectorist, uh, just before some buildings were put up in, in Thetford in Norfolk, found this collection of spoons and other jewellery. And these spoons seem to have been, they've got inscriptions on them that suggest that they were used in some kind of late antique cult of the god Faunus, and that possibly the cult members were engaging in some kind of ecstatic ritual where they themselves identified as forms, uh, although it's, you know, that, that's all open to interpretation and it's, it's discussed at much greater length in my book. But 
yeah, it, it, this sort of stuff is is more um, ephemeral. Probably if you go to your local museum, what you're most likely to see relating to godlings are little bronze statues of Lares. And these are the Roman household gods that people used to keep in little household shrines called, called a Lararium. Uh, so that's probably the most you know common material culture that you'll encounter. But you won't find any temples or anything like that. You literally just took my next question out of my mouth was going to be, do you find those statues that were found in Laros and did they exist in Roman Britain? Because I'm not, I know that obviously they existed in Rome and, and, and other conquered lands, but did they actually exist in Britain? But you've answered that. That's fine. My question's going out the window. Let's move on. I mean, because, so for example, looking at witches and hags, how do godlings compare to these things? Because they're throughout folklore. I mean, especially even through po- Polish folklore, you've got witches and hags stray across the board in roman britain or in britain in general how does that how does that all compare yeah this is a a really fascinating issue uh because the way that we tend to think of witches is of human beings who are accused of witchcraft you know we're we're living in the historical shadow of the great witch hunts and, and persecutions of the 16th and 17th century um but if we go a little bit earlier, if we go to the late Middle Ages or earlier, we find that people are as likely to think of witches as non-human creatures as they are to think of human beings as witches. And in fact, I would argue that witches and godlings, they they kind of share a common ancestry. Uh, That in fact, you know, the the relic of this that we have in English is the word hag. so a hag is sometimes a synonym for a witch. So it can just mean a, you know, a, a woman who does bad magic to people. But it can also mean some kind of non-human being. And this, this survives in hagstones. Um, so most people in Britain will be familiar with the concept of a hagstone. It's a stone that you find on the beach and it's got a hole through it, a natural hole. And you hang it up as a protection against witches or against hags. And in fact, the, the way that those hags are imagined are these kind of these beings that fly around in the night and that they will cause nightmares. Uh, and they will, you know, in the case of stables, they will ride horses during the night and tire the horses out. And these are not human. These are not human beings. These are kind of monstrous creatures from folklore. And so, yeah, there, there is a link. And I think if we go back far enough, we can go back to the early Middle Ages, we can see there are these supernatural female beings who are perhaps in pre-Christian society considered with awe, they're, they're regarded with a degree of fear, but they're not necessarily exclusively evil. But then as Christianity comes in, the way that preachers, or one way in which preachers deal with people's belief in these beings, is to portray them as evil. You know, when Christianity comes into a society, there's various ways that you can get rid of people's previous beliefs. And one way is to tell people that they were completely wrong and that these beings don't exist. But that's really only a technique that missionaries have been engaging in since the 18th and 19th centuries. In the, in the medieval world and in the world of late antiquity, nobody was going to be convinced by an argument that said, you know, oh, these beings that you believe in just don't exist. Because in a pre-enlightenment world, nobody's going to take that seriously. And so, you know, the other alternative that you've got is to demonize them. In other words, convince people that the beings that they've hitherto been worshipping or regarding as benevolent, are in fact evil. And so I think something like that has happened with regard to the hags. That's really interesting because when 
we started talking about these hags, the only thing that has come into my mind is a modern day slur is to basically call someone, oh, she's a old hag, to basically portray that that person is ugly and scary and horrific. And it kind of makes sense to how the Christians, uh, Catholics, have just turned around from someone being, I don't know, a godling that somebody worshipped to someone that's just evil. And that's how, in modern day terms, we kind of portray, I don't know, someone you don't like or whatever in that context. Yeah, absolutely. And and we see this happening all the time in, in late antiquity. We see, um, yeah, sort of the, the, the preachers taking gods that had previously been venerated and convincing people that they were actually, you know, evil, evil beings that were to be avoided. And, and another great example is that the Parkai become the Weird Sisters. So the Weird Sisters probably best known to us um, culturally as Shakespeare's weird sisters, who are often referred to as as witches, even though actually they're they're only referred to as witches in a stage direction in Macbeth. They're never referred to as witches in the text of the play itself. Um, but they are, yeah, originally they're they're not evil beings. They're just goddesses who who preside over human destiny, and they they have their they seem to be scattered across Indo-European cultures. So we find them in Norse belief. We find them in in um, Baltic belief, we find them in, in, in British belief as well. Um, but yeah, they, they become demonized and turned into these kind of hag-like beings. And I think there's an element of misogyny in this as well, that female deities or female godlings undergo more kind of aggressive demonization than male godlings, it seems. Um, so yeah, it is, it's a fascinating phenomenon. And you can still see that again. I'm going to bring up modern because it's the only way I can compare to this. We had a podcast with Michael Scott where we got to, I don't want to say slam because we didn't, because it's still one of my favourite Disney films is uh, is Hercules. And again, in that you see the three witches portrayed as evil, ugly, literally like hags with them passing around one disgusting eye. I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's it, it, that is the first thing that made me think of that when you were saying that they've been kind of just turned into something that they originally were not. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the Greeks and Romans, they did have beliefs about witchcraft and witches, but that was something rather different from what then, yeah, what then kind of appears uh, once Christianity arrives. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it's true that, you know, I, and I think this is a fascinating feature of godlings in that they, they don't have stable characters over time. They might retain a name that is similar over time, but that name comes to have totally different connotations. So, you know, the, the, the old English word hagtessen, uh, which is where we get our word hag from. Hagtessen in Anglo-Saxon England, they seem to have been like Valkyries. So they, they were these kind of warrior women, supernatural warrior women, a bit like victories in, um, in, in the, the, the Roman world, you know, these kind of embodiments of military glory. And yet somehow they become transformed, you know, into a synonym for ugly witches. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the way that, you know, the, the word stays the same, but its meaning is deeply unstable over time. So you see a development in some of these, but are there any new godlings that come to light? You know, you've told us that their name changes, but the idea could change, whichever way it decides to go. But is there anything new that arises? Yeah, I, I mean, I think what you see is 
over time a kind of a, a, a transformation of ideas about godlings, partly as a result of conversion to Christianity, and partly as a result of other cultural changes, like, you know, the, the major cultural change in early medieval Britain is that you've got these Germanic peoples coming in with their Germanic culture and changing what had been a, you know, a Romano-British or, 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 or British culture. Um, and yeah, you, you end up with a, a kind of a whole ecology of supernatural beings of whom one element of that ecology are the elves. Now, then the Norman conquest happens. And there's a bit of a kind of period of evidential darkness here where we just don't know what was happening. But then about a century after the Norman conquest, we suddenly start hearing about elves again. But all the other beings have gone. So it's almost as though the elves have eaten all the other supernatural beings. They've eaten all the other godlings. And all the godlings have become elves. Um, and so that's one major transformation. The elf seems to become this kind of catch-all term for supernatural godlings who live under the ground and they come out to kidnap children and they might wish you harm, but they're also kind of weirdly beautiful and 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 appealing and attractive. And um, yeah, so the, the, they become the elves. But then in the 14th century, the elves start to be referred to by this newfangled French term. And that newfangled French term is fay, um, les fay. Uh, who live in a place called Féerie, that is to say, the realm of the Fae. And eventually that term is corrupted into Middle English fairy. And by around about the 15th century, that in southern England starts to overtake the term elf. And elf continues to be used in the north. Um, so, you know, right up to recent times, people talk about elves in Yorkshire or whatever. But in the south and in the in, in the southeast, fairy takes over. But these beings are not in any way different. It's just a kind of an innovation, an innovative term borrowed from the French that starts being used. And gradually those beings start to change as well as a result of literary interpretations. And perhaps the most notorious transformation of fairies is the way that in the 18th century and the 19th century, they get wings and they become tiny, which they never were. They never were originally tiny with wings. Um, so, yeah, all, all these fascinating changes happen over time. Is this why the Northerners call us Southerners Southern fairies? Uh, well, I don't know, but they certainly are <laughs> Northern elves because, yeah, elf continues to be. I mean, certainly when you look at folklore collections from the 19th century, um, yeah, you'll find, you know, stuff in Yorkshire dialect, pretty universally it's elves uh, it's still elves and one possible reason for that is that of course yorkshire that area of the northeast that was the dane law that was under danish control for much much longer and so it's possible that that kind of um you've got this injection of norse folklore and of course the elves are huge you know the alpha um in norse culture so it may be that there's a connection there. And I should also mention, if you go really far north in Scotland, so if you go to um, areas of, of the Scottish Isles, like Orkney and Shetland, that were largely dominated by um, Norse culture, and uh, also some areas on the mainland that were very heavily Norse, we don't get elves or fairies, we get trows. And trows are, of course, the same as Scandinavian trolls. That's just the way that the word has developed in Scotland. Um, so, yeah, um, th that's unique to that area of Britain. There's nowhere else in the British Isles 
that you will find trowels just in that area of yeah Shetland, Orkney, and a few patches of the you know the east coast of the Scottish Highlands. I've got to say, all of these words, so for example, elves and fairies and trolls. Obviously, modern day literature has kind of skewed our kind of perception of these things, but it's really interesting to find out that it all developed from sort of one idea that developed into another, that one area adopted something else to another thing. And you've now got from one idea, I don't even know how to phrase this, one sort of belief has morphed into something like three or four different ones. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, that's right. And I think understanding language is key to this, um, you know, in, in the same way that words change their meanings over time. So the supernatural beings that are attached to those words also change. Because what you've got to bear in mind is that, you know, when it comes to supernatural beings, they are culturally constructed. They, they are beings that only mean what a culture wants them to mean. And so their meaning is, is very unstable, you know, compared to, you know, the various words that have been used over the centuries to refer to a badger. They refer to the same being, which is a badger, you know. And so, you know, from a linguistic point of view, it's not as complicated you know, to track down what these words might mean. But when it comes to fairies, you know, these, you know, they they have a kind of cultural reality because, you know, people experience them as real and genuinely fear them. But they also are very, very unstable because, you know, a different culture might come in and it's got a different view of what these beings are and how they function. And you get this cultural soup where people are kind of exchanging ideas. So, for example, the idea that elves live under the earth that seems to be an idea that the Anglo-Saxons borrowed from the Britons. So that's something that we find in, well, we find it in Ireland as well, you know, the idea of the, the she, the burial mounds and so forth. There's no evidence from that the Anglo-Saxons believed this. But by the time of the Norman conquest, it seems to have all, the soup had all kind of mixed together. And these British elements had come into the, um, you know, the, 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 the idea of, of elves. And I think also the idea that there's a kingdom of elves or fairies ruled over by a king and queen. That's a deeply, deeply British idea. So it's something that we find in um, you know, the earliest uh, the earliest Welsh legends, for example. Whereas there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, the Anglo Saxons thought this. And I think you you know what you mentioned about literature is really important as well. Our ideas about some of these beings and indeed our word association, you know, when I say elf, when I say dwarf, people are going to think Tolkien. And you know, Tolkien was a great writer. And also a great medievalist. 
But what he was doing was constructing this kind of clever fiction, which created a kind of synthetic mythology that never was. And so I think we have to be a little bit careful about, you know, setting aside these kind of assumptions that have built up as a result of the fiction that we've been reading and the way that, you know, for example, um, Tolkien invented the plural dwarves with a V. So up to that point, it had always been dwarfs. And, and But that has totally sunk into our culture. We always now talk about dwarves. We don't talk about dwarves. Um, so I think, you know, the, the way in which, yeah, our minds have almost been reprogrammed by reading Tolkien and, 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 and C.S. Lewis or whatever. And so we have to be very careful that we undo all that kind of programming. Although I'd argue that the biggest programming that we need to undo is the idea of the Celtic twilight. And this is the idea that the Celtic world, so Ireland, Wales, uh, Scotland, um, you know, Gaul and so forth, that this was all some kind of united cultural area where everybody thought broadly the same thing and had broadly the same religious beliefs. And this really is not true. And so one of the, one of the more controversial iconoclastic things that I do in my book, Fallout of the Godlings, is I basically reject the idea that we learn everything by looking at Ireland. And, and for decades, that's been the approach, you know, if you want to know about Celtic folklore and beliefs, look to Ireland because that's where they've been preserved in this pristine form. Well, it may well be that Irish folklore has been preserved in a um, a more pristine form than British, but we actually don't have any reason to think there is much relationship between the beliefs that were held in Ireland and the beliefs that were held in Britain. So I'm very skeptical of that. And my approach is just to go back to these earlier sources and say, you know, let's not make assumptions here. Let's just look at what the sources actually say about these godlings. And so my argument in the book is that really we owe more to the Romans. We owe more to the Romans than we do to kind of this Iron Age Celtic society, whatever you want to call it, which we don't really know much about. Isn't that saying a little bit like going to Eastern Central Europe and saying, oh, the Poles, the Lithuanians, the Ukrainians, the Russians, and let's say, I don't know, the Slovaks all have pretty much exactly the same region, the same borderline ethnical type of people so therefore they all have like the same beliefs well, no their beliefs are similar different and a whole mixture of in between that's pretty much exactly what some of these historians are saying and what you're dispelling yeah exactly and i think the the great temptation is there isn't very much evidence and when there isn't very much evidence you start clutching at straws and you start to you know go with whatever you have and so, yeah, you know, what you say about East Central Europe is exactly the same. That you'll, you'll get people saying, oh, you know, because there's this one medieval source that describes some Slavs worshipping this god. That means all Slavs must have worshipped this god. It just it doesn't follow. You know, in the same way that there is religious diversity in our world. So there was immense religious diversity in the past, probably more religious diversity. I mean, when you, when you look at the way in which linguistic diversity has shrunk. Uh, and there were many, many, you know, Slavic languages, there were many, many Celtic languages, um, you know, and this, people lived in quite separated communities and did their own thing. And so, yeah, I think the idea that there was huge religious diversity in the past is highly likely. And so I think we, we just need to, all these cultures, we need to give them their due and we need to show the respect that is due to them by actually giving them their own history and not trying to give them someone else's history or extrapolate their history on the basis of somebody else's. And so that's something I feel very strongly about, you know, whether it comes to, you know, Britain's godlings or, you know, one of my other areas of research, which is attempting to understand uh, Baltic 
pre-Christian religion. Um, but yeah, I, I think we just, yeah, we need to be a bit more respectful in terms of, yeah, recognising that individuality was possible. I find that really interesting because while you were just talking there and saying, for example, how everybody had their own sort of beliefs. For me, all I could picture is the medieval period, even pre the like really super duper early medieval period in Poland. Poland wasn't even Poland. It was broken up into tribes. So even the, um, I can't remember how to say the word in English, Polonianie is is the, is the Polish word. So basically the, 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 the polonial sort of tribe, I think that's the best way of saying in English, and versus, for example, Silesia or the, the Kashuba area where they had their own tribes and they even had their own beliefs. And it's just, do you know what? You've kind of stumped me here. I want to go and do a bit of research to say, no, no, I can't. This is your fault. <laughs> <laughs> I need to know more. Anyway, we're going off track. Let's go back on track. Um, because we've spoken a little bit about this, but let's go into a little bit deeper is how things change when Christianity is introduced into Britain. Yeah, so the Christianization of Britain is a long-winded process, which goes back as well as forward. It starts in earnest sort of around the middle of the fourth century when you've got this kind of official Christianization under the first Christian emperors of Rome. And there's great debate among historians about, you know, to what extent this is successful by the time that the Romans withdraw from Britain in about 410. And after that point, we seem to have a significant intensification in religious commitment to Christianity among the Britons, partly but perhaps because they are abandoned and they feel under threat and Christianity is part of their identity as Romans. And so you get figures like Patrick, who of course goes off to convert the Irish, and Gildas, who seem to be very, very committed Christians, determined to keep Britain Christian at the same time as you've got these non-Christian tribes coming in from the North Sea, your your, your Saxons and your Angles and your Dukes and so forth. Um, And they, of course, establishing some kind of non-Christian religion. And so it's not until 597, when the, the, the mission is sent from Rome of Augustine of Canterbury to, to convert the English, that Christianity kind of gets back on the, on the front foot, if you like, in the, in the conversion of Britain. And from then on, it's a, a fairly smooth progress of Christianization until the Vikings come along, and they, of course, are also pagan. And so we have this brief period in the 9th century and the 9th and 10th centuries when in the north of England in particular, there might have been sort of renewed paganism. But certainly active paganism in the sense of a proper commitment to a pre-Christian religion as your identity, apart from any kind of Christian identity, that's something which disappears around about the year 1000 in in Britain. But having said that, we do get syncretism. We we get the incorporation of pre-Christian practices and the survival of pre-Christian practices underneath the new religion. I I think the thing about Christianization in the early medieval period is that the aim is to make a country as Christian as it needs to be. In other words, it's not a totalizing process. It's not a a total kind of cultural totalitarian capture. That comes later, sure. But at at the first, that's not the aim. And so one way to explain the survival of godlings is that they continue to exist underneath the new religion, because they account for and explain areas of life that Christianity doesn't really have anything to say about. So if you're living in a subsistence society where you're struggling from year to year, from harvest to harvest, to feed your family, let alone feed anybody else with what you're growing on your land, 
you are totally subject to the vagaries of nature. And so these beings kind of explain things like why your, you know, your, your milk doesn't uh, turn into butter, you know, why your cows fall sick and so forth. And Christianity is there for, you know, great existential questions about life, the universe and everything and, and your future destiny of your soul and so forth. But these beings, they continue to exist in this kind of niche that survives for pre-Christian deities. Um, and I think the other reason they survive is that they're not really worshipped. They might be placated. You know, you've got these customs that, that still survive in Ireland, for example, where milk and cream are put out for the fairies. But this is not quite the same as slaughtering a goat or slaughtering a pig and, you know, making offerings on an altar and so forth. So you get these this sort of low level cult, this sort of low level offerings. But there's nothing like the kind of, you know, the scale of, of, of worship that needs to be stamped out. And they don't really compete with the Christian God because they're beings of such a different nature. So those those are some possible reasons why we might get some kind of continued existence of godlings kind of been concentrating a little bit on the early medieval period because your book actually works its way into the late medieval period as well so not just the early what are the changes does it change is there a, a swing to kind of get rid of godlings are they believed in more what is happening in the late medieval period at this time yeah two major changes in the late medieval period one is that theologians and uh, preachers start to become a bit concerned about people's belief in fairies. And I think this is a symptom of a general kind of growing paranoia about heresy. And, and this can be traced back to the period of the Albigensian Crusades, when you've got a crusade for the first time being fought against people who are deviant Christians, who are heretics, rather than against Muslims or against pagans in the in the Baltic or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, this sort of growing sense of paranoia throughout the Middle Ages that maybe people right in your community might be believing things that are totally unacceptable. And so whereas belief in things like fairy trees or fairy stones or healing people by the power of fairies would have gone completely unnoticed in the 12th century, by the 13th, 14th century, it's starting to attract attention. Um, and so, yeah, there is a more of an attempt to try and stamp out these kind of beliefs, although how successful it is, is a, is another question. But it comes up in sermons again and again and again. You know, don't put your faith in the fairies. Don't believe in the fairies. The fairies will cause you harm and so forth. Um, and I think the other major development that we get in the in the late Middle Ages is a, a move towards a much more complex understanding of fairyland and the world in which fairies live. And this is driven by literature. So we've got the creation of the romances. Uh, the romance tradition begins in France in the 12th century that spreads into other vernaculars, including English and, and Welsh. And so we end up with a lot of romances which have fairy characters. Now, there's a huge debate among scholars about the extent to which these fairy romances actually reflect what people thought about fairies? Or is this high fantasy? Is this just somebody who's taken the idea of fairies and kind of explored it within a fictional world? It's a bit like, you know, if all other, you know, literature were lost for the late 20th century and all we had were the Harry Potter books, if you imagine somebody reading the Harry Potter books and thinking, oh, this is what late 20th century people believed about magic, they believed that there was a secret world of, of wizards living hidden under London or whatever. Um, and of course, 
that's not true because it's purely fantasy. It's literature. And I think that the same thing is true of medieval literature. But at the same time, even if it's just fantasy and literature, literature has a cultural impact. It changes the way that people think about certain concepts. And that's, of course, true. Again, going back to the analogy of Harry Potter, that has affected the way that people who are actually interested in magic think about magic because of the huge cultural impact and legacy of that. And it's true also, I think, of the fairy romances. So the fairy romances start to make people believe that there is maybe this hidden fairy world ruled over by a king and queen of the fairies. So that by the 16th century, the most common fairy character who pops up again and again and again is the queen of the fairies. And you get various magicians trying to make contact with the queen of the fairies or fraudsters, you know, promising people that they can, you know, gain the favor of the queen of the fairies who will lead them to treasure and things like that. So I think that is something which, to a large extent, does come out of that literary tradition. I have to admit here, I am part of that Harry Potter generation, because when I was, I think I must have been about 11, I think I was the age of Harry Potter when he became a wizard, is when the first books started coming out. So every couple of years, I would grow up with a brand new book. And to be honest, you're right, it does actually skew your whole idea of magic and trolls and fairies and God knows what other mythical animals come involved. And what doesn't even help is The Witcher has now made it even worse because now you're viewing something in a complete and you're thinking, oh, but that's not Harry Harry Potter. No, wait, no, no, hold on. So then I go back and I actually look online at folklore to see how that correlates um, because obviously, you know, you've got to be a weirdo historian somehow and I'm trying to understand it a little bit better. So, yes, I am one of those. I am one of your Harry Potter skewed generation people. Okay, I'm going to give you five minutes to do a whole five, six, maybe seven hundreds worth years of history in five minutes. What happens after the first of all, what happens after the medieval period with godlings? And what you kind of answered this question already, but I'm going to make you do it again is do people still believe in them today? Um, Yeah, so after the medieval period, the key watershed that we've got is the Reformation. Now, the Reformation leads to a a tightening, um, an extreme tightening of those earlier practices of of demonising beings of folklore. And something which I think you can see quite clearly when it comes to Britain and England in particular, but also Scotland, you can see how People who were uh, accused of witchcraft in the witch trials, some of them were very deeply versed in fairy folklore. And so when they were tortured or when they were um, compelled to kind of confess their crimes, some of the things that they came up with were um, very much drawn from fairy folklore. Um, probably the most famous example of that would be Isabel Gowdy in, in, in Scotland, who seems to have talked about, you know, very much kind of fairy themes of, of transformation into animals and things like that. Um, so, yeah, all this stuff becomes intensely demonized. And really, we in the 17th century, writers are constantly talking about how fairy belief can be stamped out um, and how this is something which belongs to the age of popery, that it's something associated with Catholicism uh, and it, it needs to be destroyed. And it, 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 in fact, they have great confidence that it is being destroyed, that it's going away. 
But it's almost literature and drama that saves it. Uh, because the thing about fairies is that they're very, very good vehicles for drama. And Shakespeare understood this. And so fairies play a key role, uh, most famously in A Midsummer Night's Dream, but also, of course, in The Merry Wives of Windsor and in The Tempest. Ariel is a fairy. Um, you know, fairies are absolutely key. Fairy magic is key to, uh, to The Tempest. And I've already mentioned the, uh, the Weird Sisters in Macbeth are really from the fairy tradition, you know, rather than being human witches. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're hugely important to Shakespeare. And I think because the Midsummer, Midsummer Night's Dream becomes such a key part of the dramatic canon, it inspires this whole kind of literature about fairies in the 17th century. And by the end of the 17th century, you've got quite a lot of people who look down on fairy belief. They, they see it as something for common people. Um, you know, this is something for rustics. But at the same time, it's also a source of amusing imagery. And so when you look at the work of poets like Drayton or Herrick, they start to write about the fairy world in this kind of fanciful way, where the fairies are the size of insects and they drink out of little cups made of acorns and they help the plants grow. And they're these kind of, you know, be beings who almost kind of act as a mirror to human society, but they're largely a literary construct. You know, they're not anything more uh, serious than that. And then fairies find their way into pantomime in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, so they become part of popular entertainment. You know, people will dress up as fairies and, and you've got this whole tradition of, you know, enacting fairy stories and so forth and in, in popular drama. And it, it, they also start to become associated with children. Now, fairies have always, to some extent, been associated with children, but not in a good way, because traditionally fairies were the abductors of children. You know, they, they have an interest in children and they want to steal them. They are the enemies of children. They're predators. And yet they kind of come into, in the 19th century in particular, they come into the nursery as sort of things that it's appropriate for children to be interested in, but not adults. So fairy stories are for children. And of course, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan is the absolute classic example of that although i would say that there are some quite dark elements to peter pan that is a dark book you know read, read one way you know about you know ch childhood loss and trauma there's all sorts of dark stuff going on there um but certainly yeah the tinkerbell fairy that jm barry creates then becomes the template for the disney fairies and you know disney's fairies are all little creatures that have wings and fly around with these kind of insect-like wings and I think that what, what has happened now is that we've moved to a kind of international fairy, largely produced by pop culture like Disney. Um, and the international fairy is this being with pointy ears, usually, you know, quite attractive, maybe quite mischievous looking, who fly, is very, very tiny, flies around with, um, with, with gauzy insect-like wings and has some kind of vague connection with nature. Now that has made Fairy is an attractive symbol for, for people who are interested in conserving the environment and, and, and you know, saving the world from climate change and things like that. Um, but what it's taken away is the much darker aspects of fairies. You know, when you go back to medieval belief or even early modern belief, fairies are very, very dark beings that you don't want to mess with. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. There are people today who claim to have experiences where they encounter fairies. But mostly those encounters are mediated through the cultural expectations of what we might tend to think that fairies are. 
So they tend to be encounters with these quite benevolent uh, winged beings, rather like the Cottingley fairies. So that the famous case where uh, after the First World War, a group of girls in Yorkshire created these photos by cutting out figures from scrapbooks and fairy books and pretending that these were real fairies and managed to fool several people, including famously Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, that these really were fairies. Uh, and, you know, this kind of set the tone for what 20th century fairies were going to be like. They were going to be these kind of, um, you know, benevolent beings of childhood fantasy rather than the, the much darker beings that we encounter in a lot of in a lot of fairy lore. So, yeah, fairies are still part of the worldview of some people. Um, but one thing I find fascinating is the way that in Britain, some supernatural beliefs are kind of socially acceptable. So, you know, if you say, I believe in ghosts because I saw a ghost, or my friend saw a ghost, it might be real. Most people are at least willing to give that a hearing. You know, yes, then, of course, you know, a few really kind of hardcore skeptics will shout you down and say, you know, no, no, ghosts aren't real. But usually belief in ghosts is given a bit of a free pass in Britain. If you start piping up and saying, you know, I believe in fairies, the reaction to that is almost instinctively laughter. It, it's kind of, you know, it, it's something which is thought of culturally as childish in some way. But again, that's something when you go back to the Middle Ages or the early modern period, fairies are no laughing matter. You know, they are not something which, you know, they're an object of fear. You know, that, the, you know, these beings might come out of the earth and steal your children. These are terrifying beings. And so I think that, again, it's culturally conditioned by what we have come to think of fairies as being. And largely that's derived from a pop culture that has kind of shorn them of their negative and their, their dangerous associations. I think it'll make a good Netflix show, really. Not not the not the modern day pretty little tiny fairies. I'm talking about let's go back to the medieval period with some of these hardcore godlings. Nasty fairies. Exactly. So now you've got to pitch this to a production company and get your Netflix show going because I think that will be so much more darker and fun rather than Tinkerbell. Oh God, Beth is going to kill me for saying that, but yeah, Tinkerbell would be uh, no, no. Let's skip that one. But tell us. Before we finish, what is your favourite godling? I think that my favourite godling would have to be Robin Goodfellow. Um, and that's because Robin Goodfellow is a character who is named as such in the 16th century. And he, he pops up a lot in early modern sources. But he seems to encapsulate a lot of these weird changes that take place. You know, he is on the face of it, a domestic fairy. So he turns up to your house, a bit like brownies in Scottish tradition. And it will tidy your house. But if you try and pay him for it or reward him for it, not only will he go away forever, but he might do something awful to you as well. Uh, so that's classic kind of domestic fairy. But he also seems to be identified as faunus. And so there's this wonderful 17th century woodcut where he's portrayed as, you know, the goat goddess, the goat footed god faunus or pan dancing in a circle of fairies, but he's got his broom. You know, for his domestic talk. And so it's a combination of the sublime and the ridiculous in that he seems to be this figure who is, in some sense, a, a lingering remnant of a Roman deity. And yet he is also this kind of very banal kind of domestic spirit. And yet he's got this nasty edge. You know, if you if you piss him off, if you try and reward him for work that he's done, 
he might do something, it might burn your house down, you know. So, so there is this kind of edge of danger to Robin Goodfellow. And yeah, I, I, I just find him fascinating because he, yeah, he sort of straddles that, um, yeah, the, the more dangerous heritage of the fairies and then the more kind of domesticated, you know, trajectory that they then go on where they become these, yeah, these sort of less threatening beings. Remind me, how do we summon him? How do we summon Robin Goodfellow? Um, yes. That's a good question. I, I mean, I think that, yeah, I'm not sure I'm aware of any specific summoning, but there are, there are, um, there were magicians in the 16th and 17th century who came up with spells for summoning various fairies. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think with, with Robin Goodfellow, um, yeah, I don't, there's not anything specific. It's not like the kind of, you know, the Bloody Mary, um, three times in a mirror type thing, but it's, uh, yeah. Uh, he just seems to turn up in your house and start cleaning your house. I need him very much so because I hate doing cleaning. I'm, yeah. Anyway, it's been great. I have had my eyes opened. My Harry Potter brain has been uh, broken. My Tolkien brain has been broken. But I'm really excited uh, for our listeners to actually go grab your book and learn a little bit more. So before we finish, remind our listeners the name of your book. So the book is Twilight of the Godlings, The Shadowy Origins of Britain's Supernatural Beings, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. And we will get a copy into our bookshop. Make sure you go to our bookshop or use your local bookseller. Chris usually does this ending. I really suck at it. It's don't go and buy from the shop that's named by a river because of shooting a rocket into the air and spending loads of money or whatever Chris does his little spiel. Or I might just cut and paste him into the ending or just make it so much easier. But this has been great. It's been awesome. We've got to get you back on because you've got some really other awesome subjects that I think we should cover on this podcast too. So thank you. Thank you very much. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.